There are a number of things you could run into while out in the great outdoors. You could be attacked by a wild animal. You can nearly escape being stalked by a Bigfoot. Or something supernatural could pop up at any moment. Welcome back to the swamp, my friends, and welcome if you're new. Today I'm going to be sharing some creepy and allegedly true outdoors horror stories that'll freak you out tonight. If you have a story that you would like to share in a future episode, be sure to send it in at swampdweller.net. I'd love to share your story. I'm always looking for new ones to share in future episodes. Be sure to hit that like button and subscribe if you're new. And be sure to relax, because now we have some scary and allegedly true outdoors horror stories that'll freak you out tonight. My first experience with the supernatural was one of the most terrifying life experiences I can remember. It happened when I was young and dumb and wanted to go into the world and explore. While I was out of my home country of Canada, I witnessed a horror I'd never forget. I had gone on a trip with some of my buddies to Montana, just below my home province of Alberta. We were initially going to stay in Yellowstone National Park but decided to head to Glacier National Park first before camping out at Yellowstone for a few days. We finally reached Glacier Park after about a six hour drive and had just enough time to do a little hiking before going to our hotel in the nearby town to rest and move on towards Yellowstone. We had gotten to the park around 4.30 p.m. and decided it was a great idea to hike after dark. So we walked up the trail looking at the glorious views of rivers and waterfall of the Avalanche Creek Trail. The light began to fade rather quickly while we were out there, and we hiked into the course of about 10 kilometers, so it would take us about two hours to get back. This is when things go downhill. Me and my friends and I were all outdoorsmen and loved to go hiking and travel around the Rocky Mountains, but we were still inexperienced when it came to night hiking. Since the trail we were on wasn't as traveled as the other parts of the trail, the course we had to follow was very hard, and especially in the dark. Although now and then, we would see a sign that notified us that we were going in the right direction. At some point, maybe a third of the way down the mountain, we went off trail, following a bit of a rabbit trail, thinking we were still on the correct path. We began to figure out that we were not going the right way, as my friend checked his compass, showing we were heading deeper into the mountain's miles and miles of forest. Then began the mass panic of my friends and I immediately turning around and beginning to walk the way we came but the trail we were following didn't look the same as it had before, leading us to be even more lost. That is when we collectively noticed how quiet it had gotten. There were no insects, no birds, not a single thing. It was dead silence. I knew this was a bad sign, as I'm a hunter, and when it gets quiet like this, it means there is a significant predator around that is also hunting. We had become prey to some unknown beast in the woods. We all began getting a sudden anxiety spike when I told the guys what was up. That's when we hear a noise that brings terror. A guttural howl from up the mountain. It was then followed by many more. My heart fell into my throat and the terror I felt made me shake. Most of my friends did all the same, but two of the others had already dipped down and began running down in the opposite direction of the house. We all followed, running ourselves ragged. We all looked behind and saw the eye shine of something much larger than we had ever anticipated. The eyes were at least six feet off the ground and moving towards us fast. That is when we split up, running in random directions, hoping to lose these beasts. It was never going to happen. I could hear the breathing of one of these things about 20 feet behind me. Suddenly, my friend appears from the tree line to my right 
and we end up running together until I cut him off, hoping to escape. I know I left him to die that night, but it was a last-ditch effort that worked out to my advantage. I heard his scream through my left and ran as fast as I could away from them with tears rolling down my face as I listened to his cries for help. I continued running down the mountain until I saw a familiar sight ahead of me. It was one of the trail signs showing how far you were on the trail. I stopped, checked where I was, and started running again, hoping to get away from the creatures on the mountain. Another kilometer down the path, I began hearing howls getting closer and closer by the moment, causing me to run even more. Looking ahead, I see the sign saying parking lot and zoom past it in my panic, looking for the keys in my pocket, scrambling for the only vehicle still in the parking lot, which was my car. I use my key fob to unlock my car from a distance and run as hard as I can towards it, slamming into the side of my door and opening it, hopping in and starting the vehicle. I look out of my windows towards the trail entrance to see two pairs of eyes staring at me from just out of range of the lamppost. They stare at me before disappearing deep into the bush as I drive away, never looking back. I arrived at the ranger station by the park entrance and ran inside, looking disheveled and terrified. I began telling the ranger at the desk that something happened. He then looked at me with a sad face as if he knew something like this would happen, and called up the search and rescue team to help me find my friends. We found most of them. But my friend I cut off, they never did find, and they're still looking for him to this day. This happened to me during my yearly campout at Lake Texoma in North Texas. The lake was built during the Second World War using mainly German prisoners of war. It sits aside the Texas-Oklahoma border, covers roughly 89,000 acres, and sees about 6 million visitors annually. It's, to my knowledge, still one of the most significant reservoirs in the country, and my favorite place to spend my birthday. Every year, the week before or after spring break, I load my camping supplies into my car and make the 30-mile drive. My usual place to set up is Eisenhower State Park, located on the Texas side of the border and happens to be named after Dwight D. Eisenhower, the famous World War II general and president born nearby. The cool thing about the park is that I can pick up spots that offer running water and electrical connections for a small fee. Although I usually camp traditionally, having access to power nearby can be convenient. Perhaps the best part of camping so early in the season is the temperatures are still reasonable. You could go out as little as two months later and already be nearing 90 plus degrees during the hottest part of the day. This also means there are far fewer other campers in the park. I've been visiting the lake since before I can remember. One of my favorite memories is of me bawling my head off and holding my bloody foot. My dad sped our boat to shore to get me some medical care I required after stepping on a broken bottle. We always wore shoes after that. In all my years of going out there, I'd never heard anything about wild packs of dogs roaming the area. While groups of feral pigs have been an ever-growing problem in our state, wild dogs have not been really a thing. Or maybe that's just my ignorance showing, and it's a bigger deal than I am aware of. Whether or not I was expecting what happened my second night, I believe that evening, no one else was within a mile of my camp. It was starting to get dark, and I walked a few feet down to the water. I often sit on the shore, watch boats cross the lake with a cup of coffee, and enjoy the calming sounds of the waves licking lightly at the beach. It had not gotten completely dark yet, but the shapes I noticed approaching me were unidentifiable. As they grew closer, I could see the shape of two dogs strolling down the shore. I figured they belonged to another camper and called out to let them know I was there. As the seconds passed, no answer came, and the dogs continued to get closer. While I'm not, nor have I ever been afraid of dogs, 
I practiced common sense measures with those unfamiliar. When they were within about 10 yards of me, I saw three more dogs of all different sizes come down the cliff at an angle from me and join the other two on the bank. My caution was beginning to shift into fear. The odds are that if a group of dogs form a pack without the moderating influence of a human, they become feral and can be a danger to any person they encounter. I was that person on this night, and things would only worsen as it went on. Running away would engage their prey drive, and I'd be run down and mauled. With no other choice, I stood still as they approached me. The two larger dogs I had seen first began to smell me. I didn't move or pet them as they did so. While the leaders sniffed, the other three began to surround me and stride toward me. Even if I had never feared dogs before, this freaked me out. During this interaction, I did my best not to indicate I was scared. But the nearer the other three came, the more nervous I grew. Things would come to a head when I felt one of them bump me in the back of my leg. I did the worst thing I could have. I jerked away. This was all the pack needed to begin attacking me. Each leader had grabbed onto me. One had gotten my hand, and the other had a mouthful of my leg. The rest had ganged up and firmly gripped my right leg. This wasn't some regular rough play. I could tell they were trying to pull me down to the ground. I quickly lost my balance and dropped to one knee. But fortunately... I had a makeshift walking stick in my right hand and used it to break my fall. One of the leaders used this as an opportunity to go for my face. However, I foresaw something like this before reaching, and I jabbed it with my stick. This gave me the time I needed to return myself to standing. With a firmer stance, I started stabbing at the others. A few let go and backed off to renew their attack seconds later. Rage and frustration began to take over, and I started swinging wildly at them. Here and there, I'd hear a screech from the darkness until finally, the assaults ceased. I stood my ground and waited for it to begin again, but the pounding in my heart was all I could hear. To be safe, I hiked back up the hill to my camp, watching the whole time for any movement in the darkness. I turned my lamps and searched the wounds when I reached it. My left hand was bloody, but after washing it, I could see it wasn't as bad as I had feared. The bad bites were to the back and the sides of my calves. The best I could do was clean them up and wrap them up until help got to me. The gates didn't close till 10pm, though the ambulance could quickly scoop me up and get me to a hospital. I spent the rest of the evening getting treated. Among the procedures was my first set of rabies shots. I was delighted to learn the process is far less extreme than it was when I was a kid. Although you still must get the vaccine over several appointments, science has made significant strides in this area. The following morning I called a friend to pick me up and take me back to break my camp down. I notified the office about the attack, but I don't know if anything was ever done. I watched the evening news and checked the papers for weeks, but nothing about dog packs or my attack was ever really mentioned. For all I know, they decided to handle the problem quietly and avoid any hits during the coming tourist season. The last few times I have camped there since the attack, I haven't encountered any feral dogs, so perhaps that was what was done. My run-in with the dogs finally motivated me to get my license to carry a handgun though. I am now legally allowed to bring my pistol with me when I go camping. Since I believe self-protection is a right, I probably should have done this much more sooner, but thankfully, I didn't have to lose my life to learn that lesson. My name is Tong Kinski, and I am the vice chair of the Boston Grotto, a caving club affiliated with the National Speleological Society. We meet on the first Wednesday of every month on the MIT campus and regularly send out open invitations in hopes of attracting new members. People always show up interested, 
I'd like to think that this wasn't just due to the pizza we ordered from the upper crust on Charles Street. <laughs> Who am I kidding? Everyone loves pizza. The Boston Grotto also organizes yearly caving trips to some fascinating, far-flung places. Last summer, we planned a deep cave expedition in the karstic limestone plateau of southern Turkey. We helped map out the cave system's lower reaches, extending the Menorca Cave's depth from 919 meters to 1240 meters. It is now officially the third deepest cave in Turkey, all thanks to our hard work and dedication. It's a very, very fulfilling hobby, but caving is neither easy nor is it relaxing. In fact, on occasion, caving can be hazardous, terrifying, and even fatal. I have plenty of stories detailing brushes with danger and death, but the one I'm about to tell you is the one that sticks with me the most. So a few years back, a ranger from the Glacier National Park in Montana got in touch with the NSS regarding a previously unexplored cave system. Christy Starr, the office manager of the NSS, referred the ranger to us due to our expertise in mapping out new sections of cave systems. The ranger contacted the Boston Grotto and offered us an all-expenses-paid caving trip to the Glacier National Park. We were ecstatic. Whether we're talking about Francis Dark, Magellan, or even Lewis and Clark, we can conclude that most, if not all, of the Earth's surface has been thoroughly documented and mapped out. There is very little in the way of land left to explore, but the same cannot be said for what lies beneath our feet. The National Speleological Society estimates that only 10 to 15 percent of the world's cave systems have been documented and mapped out, and I'm not sure people realize what an opportunity that presents to people like us. We have the chance to explore places that no man or woman has ever stepped foot in before. To be the next generation of explorers carrying the torch in place of ancient sailors, 19th century African adventurers, and even the space-faring astronauts of the 60s and 70s. I mean, there's the genuine possibility of being able to name something like the Kinski Caves or something along those lines. The chance that some of us could be immortalized in the way that Stanley or Abbott had been, given their names to Port Stanley in Africa or Abadabad in British India. And so it was that. Two members of the Boston Grotto and I drove out to Montana in a van filled of caving gear, snacks, and beer. Given that the drive took a couple of days, we made something of a road trip out of it, stopping off at Chicago to stretch our legs and take in the sights of the Windy City. Accompanying me on the trip was Paul Hutch Hutchinson, coordinator of experience-based training here at Boston University, and another member of the Grotto, Nestor Ramos. Previously employed by Lynchburg College in Virginia, Hutch had expanded the outdoor leadership program to include backpacking, rock climbing, horizontal caving, vertical caving, and canoeing, as well as creating an academic minor in outdoor recreation. To others, caving and other outdoor activities were just a hobby, but for Hutch, it was more of a vocation, something he was compelled to do in his blood. And he brought that same passion to almost everything he did. Nestor, on the other hand, was a relatively newer member of the Grotto, but what he lacked in raw experience, he made up for an enthusiasm and competence. It was a natural in ways that made the younger me very envious. After almost five whole days of driving, we finally made it to Browning, Montana. We stopped to get a bite to eat and then headed further down Highway 2 until we reached where we would be staying, the Traveler's Rest Lodge, a set of log cabins that were every bit as charming as rustic and amazing as I imagined. We slept like the dead that night, and after sleeping in a van for four nights, I had never been so appreciative of a nice mattress. The following day came the trip of the Glacier National Park itself. 
we packed up our gear, which included our very specialized helmets, light, thin, and comfortable, with a four-point suspension that will stay on in a fall, and it's safe to mount batteries, flashlights, and brackets on. We threw extra batteries and flashlights into a small, practical backpack. We had different layers of warm clothing, food, and water. But then came perhaps the coolest part of the trip so far. Given that Glacier National Park is pretty much inaccessible to anybody but experienced hikers, the rangers out there have planned something a little special for us to save us from exhausting ourselves before the exploration even began, a helicopter ride into the park itself. We were told to be in a particular field at a specific time, which we were, and seeing the chopper coming from the distance, the thudding of its rotor blade shattering the early morning tranquility. It was just incredible. I'm a massive fan of old war movies, and if it wasn't so chilly that morning, I might have felt like we were back in Vietnam or something. Special forced guys being airlifted behind enemy lines. Despite being ferried deep into the national park via helicopter, Finding a safe place to drop us off was another thing. We landed about a mile's hike from the cave system itself, with one of the park rangers guiding us up a steep set of paths, which led us into this tiny, restrictive entrance of a mountainside. We arranged a call-out time of 20.30 that evening, enough time to get out of the cave and back down the mountain to the landing before sunset. After that, the park ranger left us to hike back down to the chopper, and our journey began in earnest. I immediately understood why the cave system was previously unexplored. The entrance was barely traversable, even to us experienced cavers, and more than once, I had to completely exhale to make my torso fit through the narrower gaps. Hutch was the point man as he headed in, and each little cranny he had to shimmy through was assessed adequately for danger. A giant man might have been stuck, to suffer the same fate as the guy in Utah about ten years earlier something I wouldn't wish upon my worst enemy. About a half hour of severe anxiety that verged on claustrophobia, the tunnels began to open a little, and I do mean just a little. They were still narrow enough that we could do nothing but crawl on our hands and knees, occasionally just our bellies, to get deeper inside a place that no man had ever trodden. It was terrifying but thrilling in a way that I don't think I can put into words. It's like one long burst of adrenaline, Knowing you're the vanguard of underground exploration, you can almost feel it buzzing in your fingertips. So the last thing I expected when we found ourselves crawling into a more enormous, more open cave was to hear Hutch's disappointment. As you can imagine, you can't even make loud noises in a cave system. You must be as quiet as possible, given that reverberations and echoes can easily cause a cave-in if the rock isn't of a specific density. So, at first I couldn't quite make out what Hutch was getting at. I mean, I seriously thought he was injured or something at first. He started hissing and whispering curses, bawling his fist in frustration at something he'd seen illuminated by the lamp on his helmet. He crawled through. I watched him sit down, leaning against the wall in the cave, with his face obscured by his hands. I asked him what the matter was, but he just shook his head, a melancholy to his body language that I'd rarely seen before as he pointed over to the opposite side of the cave. There. Lying on the cold stone floor was a burlap sack, a small leather-bound notebook sitting just nearby. Only then did I join him against the cave wall, sorely lamenting that this wouldn't be the virgin expedition we imagined. But that didn't mean we were about ready to give up, not by a long shot. Whoever had been down here in this place previously had never officially recorded their findings, so the door was open for us still to map out and name the area. 
But before we pushed on, we decided to search the burlap sack and inspect the small book for clues as to what or who might have been up here. As I kicked the sack, I could see the remains of some old food containers and an old-style water flask, both of which were empty. They looked old, ancient, and I hurried to inspect the book to see if it had any trace of a date inside. The thing fell apart in my hands, moisture in time having long eroded the page's bindings. But we did find a page where the date was partially legible. It read 1860-something, the last number wholly worn away by damp cave air. The book has been sitting here for the better part of 200 years. And although we couldn't read a single complete sentence of what was written in it, I'd have given anything to know what the cavers of yore thought of their subterranean experiences. As we advanced into the cave system, I couldn't help but wonder, what caused an explorer to abandon their notebook like that? But we would soon discover the reason. Two caves over, we found them. Hutch called it out as soon as the beam of his headlamp passed over the dome of rib bones that jutted out from the rock. It was nothing short of terrifying, knowing they'd come down here one day never to return, never to see their loved ones again, all while their reasoning being unknown. After that, we saw three things before we turned tail and got out of there. The first was the skeleton's finger bones. A person's finger bone is divided into three distinct sections known as phalanges. The minor one is a person's fingertip. These have a distinctive shape. Go ahead and Google it, and you'll see what I mean. So it was evident that something traumatic had occurred that wore the tips of the bones away. It felt intensely creepy. Speculating how this guy had potentially lost his way in the caves, gone mad due to the deprivation and darkness, and began to scratch at the cave walls until his fingers had worn down to the bone. And even then, he hadn't stopped scratching. But. We couldn't find any cave wall sections that bore the marks that would have been made by fingers. This led us to a second thing we saw before we got out of there. It was his skull. There were scratch marks on his head, right around the orbital sockets. None of us said a damn thing about that. We all studied the yellowing bone under the headlamps because it was apparent something had occurred here. Down in the dark, almost 200 years before, he had scratched out his own eyes. We were backing out of the cave at that point, praying we would not get lost on the way back as this poor soul had. I tried to not think about the moment that poor soul's lamplight had run out, condemning him to spend what little time he had left in absolute darkness. I tried to show Hutch and Nestor, but they weren't in the least bit interested in hanging around any longer. And, if I'm being honest, I understood why. As we sat around the open field we landed at, waiting for our helicopter taxi to arrive, we agreed not to talk about what we have seen until we got back to Boston. There was a good chance that if we told the rangers what we'd seen, they'd ask us to go back in and retrieve the body of the old caver, something none of us were particularly keen to do. And as much as we agreed to not talk about it until we got home, there never did come a time where we discussed what we had seen down there again. When the rangers asked how the caving had gone, we just told them it was unsafe to be down there and there was no chance of turning the cave into a tourist trap let alone a place for experienced cavers to go, even if they wanted a challenge. I suppose I've waited long enough to get this whole thing off my chest, so now I think everyone knows about the body down there in the caves of Glacier National Park. First, I would like to thank you, Swamp Dweller, if you include my story. So, for a bit of insight on my account, I'm a big deer hunter, and have been for many years. I typically do most of my hunting in the foothills of the Sierras, 
Well, my brother and a few of our close friends visit my family's cabin every single year. This cabin is far back in the woods, miles from the nearest paved road. A couple of years back, we went to the house for our annual trip. The first few days were uneventful per usual. But after hunting for a while one afternoon, I decided to come back to the camp a bit early, drink some whiskey and take a nap. I woke up about an hour before the sun set and decided to take a quad to hike up to this old irrigation channel by myself, which I had found earlier in the day. I make it and start hiking up, and everything is normal. Birds chirping, twigs cracking, just normal forest noises. I go off the path and start bushwhacking, where I come across an old game trail. I start the course, reach a downed tree, and climb over it into the thicket of trees. The second I climb over the tree into the thicket, it suddenly got very dark, and all the noises suddenly stopped. I noticed all the forest noise was gone, and I instantly felt uneasy. I could hear my heart beating out of my chest, and I decided to push on for some reason. I walk about a hundred yards out of the thicket, and I can listen to the birds chirping again. I continue up the trail for about a quarter of a mile, and there is a bush in the middle of the course, but it's too thick to see through. Then I heard this moaning sound coming from the bush, unlike any animal or person I have ever heard. A soft cry was the only way to describe it. At this point, I was more nervous than ever. I doubled back and started running. I didn't hear a single sound behind me as I ran. Everything once again was silent, until I came back into the thicket of trees. Once I entered the thicket, all the bird noise once again came back, but then instantly was muted again. So I stopped and listened. For a second or two, it's again dead silent. Then I hear a massive crashing in the trees to my left. I glance in that direction but see nothing. I start running as fast as my legs would carry me. I went back to my quad without seeing anything, but only heard more crashing. I have no idea what I encountered or why the birds went silent once I entered that thicket but I recall this is one of the most terrifying events in my life, and the main reason why I won't explore alone in the woods. It could have been a predator, it could have been something supernatural, hell, it could have even been a really big squirrel, but what I can tell you is that something felt wrong, and there was something out there that didn't want me there. I experienced this back when I was 14 years old, and I am now 23 years old. Back then I lived on the outskirts of a small town in Montana. Behind my home, there was a forest. Now I had never stepped foot into those woods until this one day. The only time I even got close to the woods was when I was tasked with walking the family dog Charlie. Charlie was a big dog. I had never seen him cower before. On one of our walks, I heard some strange noise in the woods. It was the sound of a branch breaking. Occasionally, whenever I took walks with Charlie, I would hear these noises, and it kept on for quite some time. One thing to mention, though, is that whenever I took Charlie out during the day, nothing would ever happen. But during dusk or dawn or even nighttime, I would always hear these noises, but it would never go past the tree line. The day I decided to head in was extraordinary because it was my 14th birthday. After everyone was asleep, I snuck out with my dog, Charlie, and we navigated our way through, or, well, tried to. We ended up getting lost and came upon an abandoned shed. The last thing I expected to happen, Charlie started whimpering. That was never a good sign. I had wondered if someone was there, 
but I couldn't see anybody. I didn't think I would need any protection, so I didn't have any with me. And then, I heard those sounds. Crunching, snapping, and all the animals went silent. I was terrified, so all I could do was run to the shed and hide. Something was getting closer. I could hear the leaves crunching under its feet. It was the only way I could tell how close this thing was getting. Then, a loud bang resonated through the woods. It was walking on top of the roof. I couldn't stop shaking, but I'd like to think that Charlie could tell how scared I was because he started licking me. Around five or ten minutes later, this thing hopped off the roof and I peeked out the nearest window. There was a human-like creature with grotesque, long limbs, pale skin like the moon, jagged bones and joints. It looked fragile. Its spine was protruding underneath its skin. Instead of bumps on the spine, they looked like they were the tips of a knife. I felt sick to my stomach and almost hurled right then and there. I managed to get a look at this thing's face. It was roundish. Its eyes were beady. They looked black, but I'm not entirely sure. They were glassy like a doll's eyes. Lifeless, and soon it had started to walk away, but not without looking back, turning back toward the shed and letting out a demonic roar, like the roar of a lion mixed with the caw of a raven. I think it knew I was there. I don't know what prevented it from getting me, killing me, but whatever this thing is, I am eternally grateful that it didn't get me. Remember, if there are woods near you and you hear strange sounds, never forget that there are things out there that won't be as merciful as this thing was to me. And if anybody has any idea what this creature could be, please let me know in the comments. Thanks for listening to these creepy and allegedly true horror stories from the great outdoors sent in by viewers just like you. As always, if you enjoyed these stories, please be sure to hit that like button. I'm sure you know by now it helps the swamp grow its ever-expanding waters in the YouTube algorithm. If you're listening to this on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, give this a 5-star rating over there if you would. It really helps me out a ton on those platforms. If you're new to the swamp, why not join us? Hit that subscribe button and turn on notifications to never miss a new episode as I upload them nearly every single day on all things natural and supernatural. If you have a story that you would like to share in a future episode, whether it's from the great outdoors or a different story entirely, be sure to submit your story at swampdweller.net or the email you can find in the description down below. I would love to share your story with everyone here in the swamp. It's stories like yours that help keep this show going on a daily basis. If you're on the go and don't have YouTube Premium but still want to download and listen to your favorite Swamp Dweller scary stories no matter where you are, absolutely free, you can download them from Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher Radio, and pretty much everywhere else you find your favorite podcast online. If you'd like to support the Swamp outside of that, maybe check out the merch store. I've got shirts, hoodies, hats, and all kinds of stuff. I'd love to see you wearing some cool Swamp threads. Don't forget to join me over on Discord, Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, and I'll see you all soon with another creepy episode.